0: Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Lorraine Bracco, Academy and Emmy Award-nominated
1: actress. JK, um, I'm Amber. I'm sick. Yeah. One of my Uh, new colleagues told me that I sounded like Lorraine Bracco this week. So pro tip, don't start a new job when you don't have a voice. Yeah, Amber so
0: started a new job, so that's fun. Less fun is the lack of voice for I'm so an audio s- I've medium. i so
1: sick, everyone.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, buddy. <laughs> I've been a little under the weather, but like not, not this like, level of... I'm so under the weather. Uh, in light of that, why we're going to make lemonade out of these sick lemons.
1: Oh, and um, then we're going to steam it and put yep. it in with some mint tea and three packs of honey from Starbucks. <clears throat> I've we also week, had to travel for work.
0: So. <laughs> We've got an episode on the archaeology history, prehistory, etc. of the common cold and other maladies that have been making people call in sick to work since forever. Uh, it's going to be a relatively short one, in case you hadn't uh, arrived at that conclusion on your own. Uh, since Amber has a whole army of frogs in her throat, <laughs> and I'm trying my hardest I not have- to sniffle right on down the barrel of this microphone. So you're welcome, future me. Did you know that army was the collective noun for frogs? Is it? Yeah, it's an army really? of frogs. Yeah, it's so silly.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: I'm already learning. This is Wow. Oh. Well, we're going to keep going. <laughs> we're going to keep learning. Uh, Amber, if you had to guess, how old do you think the cold virus is? Don't read. Don't don't look down. <laughs> oh, no. <on> <laughs> um, also,
1: I looked this up like a week ago and I forgot. So oh. I'm going to guess. I'm thinking either like the Industrial Revolution or... Or proconsul had it, like it's like older than humans. Proconsul
0: had the sniffles. Well, you yeah. are right; it is older than humans. Oh, well, it's not the it's in- definitely, industrial revolution. It's definitely pre-industrial revolution. No, okay. I mean maybe you're thinking of cholera. I'm not. I don't okay. have that one. No, good, good. This may shock you. I don't actually have a definitive answer for the huh. age of the cold virus, but there is evidence that at least one source of cold symptoms, human adenovirus C. Right. Because there's like cause hundreds There's, of there's a few. Yeah. So there's it does yeah. There's a whole Fair bucket enough. of things that can cause the symptoms of what we call a cold, right? So like sniffles, full sinuses, sore throat, dizziness, all the fun things that I'm sure you, this <laughs> you're sound. experiencing. That that beautiful sound. This that sounds. velvety, that velvety rasp. <laughs> Oxymoron? Um, velvety rasp. Anyway, the human adenovirus C might be as old as 700,000 years old. That is before Homo sapiens, which is like 300,000. No, no, it's not millions of years. Um, it's like Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis.
1: Uh, I bet they weren't homo erectus then, though. They were homo...
0: (laughs) Flaccidus? Homo sniffilus. Prostratus? Mm, mm Mm-hmm. I've been a real
1: homo prostratus this week. Go on. I'm on page one. (laughs) I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) I haven't talked to anybody in two weeks. I know, I know, I know. Um, So the... Okay, so I... I say I don't have a definitive answer because I don't think there is a definitive answer yet. The most recent study I found was from 2021, and it isn't as reliable a source as I would like because it's an initial article release, um, like an open access paper uploaded to the bioarchive site before peer review. I suspect it is still in peer review because I tried to find a later version of the same paper by the same authors. I wasn't able to. Oh, that's not a great sign. But I did find some really interesting things about cold viruses and viruses in general that I'll share in a moment. Um, get ready. This might be a salami moment for your brain. Oh, I'm not no. sure. But it's, it's very <laughs> cool. Yeah, viruses are wild. <sighs> um, I'm going to share the methods and findings of this 2021 study, but please take it with sort of like a pile of caveats. I'm going to try to note any iffy parts of the study. And Amber, if you, if you see any issues, feel free to flag them. Just sort of honk over there, <laughs> <coughs> yeah, like that, like that. Oh, that sounds great. For I hope your lungs. you're editing these out. Well, I'll leave that one in. So, that, oh, okay,
1: yeah, great. Mm. Fill that in, listener.
0: Yeah. So, the source of the DNA sample. So, this is a DNA based study, and the source uh-huh. of the sample is two deciduous baby human teeth uh-huh. from a site in Siberia. Um, the site is called Yana, or the Rhino Horn Site, because there was a. I'm, I'm sorry. Rhino horn sight. Yeah, there was a... Um,
1: it was like a woolly one?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Not not the African mammal, yes. Okay. Yes. I will. Yeah, the the extinct woolly one. Been hearing about habitat destruction, so I didn't know. <laughs> no, 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 that's... No, it's entirely fair. Uh, yes, woolly rhino. There was uh, It was described as the foreshaft of an arrow. So, like, sometimes you have composite projectile points where, like, if the head of it snaps off, you can just save the first part and and make a new shaft for it. Okay. It's, yeah. So the site is north of the Arctic Circle, so DNA was preserved by the very, very low temperatures, but not perfectly preserved, so it was still fragmented. Um, so viruses can enter the teeth via the bloodstream and remain preserved in the tissue of your teeth for many thousands of years. This says tough tissue, which I
1: keep hearing to the tune of, hot-blooded by foreign tough
0: tissue <laughs> tough tissue <laughs> I was thinking of it as like like oh tough toenails like you know oh tough tissue <laughs> so despite the constant cold the virus genomes became fragmented over time and so to piece those broken sequences back together the research team analyzed each little bit of dna that they had and compared they have dna like like reference examples of the human of of viral genomes.
1: Oh, oh, not not virus DNA.
0: Yes, virus DNA. Viruses have DNA. Viruses have DNA, and that's a big part of how they replicate. So viruses look so, like, so
1: clearly okay. Amber, let me know if you see any red flags. Okay, I'm clearly qualified. Here.
0: <laughs> well, the sample size of two baby teeth, I thought might have. Uh, that's pretty small. It, is very n equals itty bitty yes viruses have dna so if a virus looks like kind of like a uh clear dodecahedron like if i were to draw a little cartoon of a virus with little stick person legs and some up of, inside that yeah. i mean yeah some, some, some of them do others and then look like others coronas don't. yes it's true um but i think these are the ones that make the common cold. Anyway. Uh, Like an
1: adenovirus is what you're talking about?
0: Yeah. Or a rhinovirus. Not related to the rhinocyte, just happens to have nose symptoms. It's called rhinovirus because it affects your nasal passages. So viruses have DNA. That is point one. (laughs) We're starting there. Virus genomes have been sequenced in order to study those viruses and and learn how they evolve so that we can sort of learn how they will continue to evolve and and sort of, you know, combat them. Um, And so the broken DNA fragments from Yana were compared to these reference genomes. And the two viral genomes that were present are adenoviruses. And they are specifically members of the adenovirus C group, which is associated with the common cold. And so the team found that these ancient adenoviruses shared most of their genetic backbone with, the, with modern viruses. So they're more related to modern viruses than they are to each other. So by comparing mm. the modern genomes to the ancient ones, the team mm-hmm. was able to generate a rough estimate of when these C-variant human adenoviruses split from the other A through G of human adenoviruses. If, would that
1: be like when they... When they first, like when they jumped to humans? Something like like that. Yeah, when they became able to
0: inhabit human bodies, I guess. Okay, okay. Yeah. The first author of this study, Sophie Nielsen, said, quote, these dates are very uncertain because we have so few samples, but it seems like they were split at least 700,000 years ago, end quote. So I, I thought, you know, in the way that you often feel you like to feel small me? or sort of like oh, yes me you amber one, me specifically okay you amber and the way that you like to feel small and like connected to the small. the vast the vastness of time um when you have a cold you might be sharing the same physical symptoms and sensations as an ancestor who wasn't even homo sapiens yet like the physical experience that you're feeling yeah. you are somehow connected to I have a
1: question for you Anna oh boy do you think i thought about this while i was sick
0: no i don't think you did what did you? I did. Oh, of oh. course. I always think about this. I feel oh, okay. very
1: human when I get something that humans can get.
0: Oh, yeah. Mortal. You know. Remember no. the art. <laughs> I was like, Baby. No, that's
1: that's American <laughs> Airlines. They do that for
0: me. So oh, yeah. remind me I'm mortal. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, you're mortal and also you're going to stay here for another six hours. <laughs> uh, so I can't believe I didn't say this up front at the top of the episode, but I need everyone listening to know I am not a medical doctor despite my text chains with Amber. so This is my favorite bit, though, is to be like, <laughs> what is Stop this? sending me pictures of your rashes.
1: <laughs> I don't have many rashes, everyone. No. But no, I, I have thought about, I, I, but, but to belabor the point, I have thought a lot about how um, my physical symptoms when I get sick with something are things that it's just like when people like, you know, like reading like lyric poetry, you know, you like, Ah, something we all do often. The ancient Greeks really had a similar approach to like romance that I did where it's like, I want to die. And (laughs) it's just like, yeah, yeah, I feel that. And so it's, it's nice to, it it is sort of comforting, but also it's just sort of like what a design flaw. Like somebody, Mm. like somebody put in like a bug report. On sinuses. We'll get there. This sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so I I want to help us all, including and especially me, understand how viruses can affect DNA. Because we have to rely on genetic data to talk about viruses until we get written accounts of these illnesses and their symptoms, which doesn't happen for uh, 695,000 years or so-ish. So- Amber, I have to the best of my ability. I have limited your speaking parts oh, in this episode. I don't want people to think that I'm just like bogarting this episode. Oh no,
1: I think they'll get it. <laughs> um, so here we go, everyone, come along with me. I'm sorry. So it's like it's not so much. I've heard my voice described as ASMR. This is more like I've got asthma. because <laughs> like, I'm a little bit. How long you? How long
0: you been sitting on that one?
1: Um, like six hours. I'm <laughs> surprised it stuck around. So, uh, we're all going to learn together from science journalist Benjamin Plackett, who is writing for Chemical and Engineering News, which I know, like, I pick up on my doorstep every morning. Mm-hmm. Same. Quote, viruses are ancient. They have been infecting animals, our ancestors included, for hundreds of millions of years before the first humans ever showed up. And the legacy of those primordial infections can still be found dwelling within our genomes today.
0: Let me know if you want to tap out at at any point. Now I definitely won't.
1: Continuing my quote. When a specific collection of events happens at just the right time, a virus can implant its genes into a host organism's DNA. And those bits of foreign DNA can end up being passed down to future generations. It's an exceptionally infrequent event, but the arc of evolutionary history is long, and these rare incidents have accrued over the millennia, so much so that these viral relics account for approximately 8% of human DNA, end
0: quote. Yeah, so viruses can hijack our DNA, but don't freak out. Everybody Um, don't freak out. I'm too late. Yep. Okay. Because before that can happen, a lot of things have to go exactly right for that virus. It's sort of like the odds of a living thing becoming a fossil. You know, like things have to happen. There exactly. are so many fossils. There are so many fossils. But I mean, if you discount the the wormy ones and the, the more sort of like sessile ones where it's... The, I'm they sorry, stay in what place. does that word mean? Sessile means something that stays in place, doesn't move much. So like shellfish are a sessile resource because they don't, they don't run away from you. Get them. Sessile. Sessile. Yeah, we're learning so much today. So Molly Hamill, a geneticist at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, says, quote, It's not like every time you get a cold, your DNA balloons up with new DNA. That's not how it works. End quote. Not every time. This time, though. Maybe this time. It's pretty bad cold. (laughs) It's really bad cold. (laughs) Specifically for a subset of... Of viruses called retroviruses, and they are specialized to do this thing. They can glom onto to cells and use specific enzymes that trick those host cells into producing the proteins that the virus needs to make copies of itself. They are literally seizing the means of production, <laughs> comrade virus. So as our DNA replicates, which it does every time our body needs any new cells ever. So like anytime you get a new cell, it's got a copy of your DNA. All of your cells have a copy of your DNA. Uh, There are mechanisms in place in our cells that perform pretty robust quality control checks. Basically, we we have a spell checker, um, making sure all of our base pairs are where they should be in our DNA. So if you're lost at this point, not you, Amber, you have to stay on this recording. But listener, if you're lost, we've got a primer episode all about DNA. And we don't mind if you pause us here to catch up. We'll still be here when you get back. so. So there's not tons of viral DNA running rampant in our cells. But every once in a while, some fragments of intruder DNA do make it into our cells. I say our as like the human species, not specifically you, me, and every individual listening. And then they hunker down and they stay there. And then just like one more like really interesting thing that we're not going to dive into, (laughs) but just in case you thought this was all bad – Uh, Sometimes this embedded viral genetic code can be helpful for species in humans and other placental mammals. For example, a virus fragment inherited who knows how long ago, probably when placental mammals split off from non-ones. Oh, from the Navi? What? No. They're non-placental mammals. I know. Stop. They're (laughs) They're not not real. (laughs) (laughs) A virus fragment inherited who knows how long ago is instrumental in the formation of the placenta. So that link, uh, we'll have that link in the show notes to an article about it. But uh, we're not going to go into that here. That's not what this episode
1: is about. Okay, Anna, mm-hmm. I'm a hominin with a cold. Mm-hmm. I don't have COVID. Good, but I have a cold. I could mm-hmm. have a coronavirus. I don't mm-hmm. like it. Mm-hmm. I I want it to go away. How do I fix mm-hmm. it? What's like the, the like the most like OG way I can do it? Like
0: <laughs> I wanna I wanna do it paleo style. Eight pounds of liver. No. Uh, That is a great question. Uh, It's (laughs) probably... Don't eat your dog's treats. Gross. Gross, gross, gross. Um, So cold remedies are probably older than we think, although just like diseases themselves, remedies can be difficult to identify in the archaeological record unless they leave some kind of physical trace. So Karen Hardy, a paleoethnobotanist at the Universitat Autonoma de Barcelona, is one of the extremely niche experts who studies these traces. So I've excerpted here from a really fantastic open access article from 2021 titled Paleomedicine and the Evolutionary Context of Medicinal Plant Use. It's a really good article. It's it's written kind of academically, but still pretty accessibly. And I really also, do admire... Like, well? Yeah, it's written really well. That's yes, a... exactly. Yeah. Um, there's It's a little... Like, in places it's a little jargony because she's talking about something so specific. Yeah. There's not necessarily, she could like talk her way around it, but it would take like an extra paragraph to just, yeah. Anyway, um, I really admire Karen Hardy's research. She's a really excellent writer. So definitely check out the show notes and read this article if it interests you. And again, Amber, uh, tap out if you need to, I'll read the, I'll I'll read the quote if you need me to.
1: Quote. Humans love medicines. Expenditure on pharmacological drugs was US, sorry, was $455.9 US dollars in the USA in 2017, while global spending on pharmaceuticals was a startling $1.25 trillion UST in 2019. That might be making a different point than humans love medicines, but I... (laughs) I don't know. Continuing the quote. Humans also love money. Humans love profiting off the suffering of other humans. Specifically humans based in the global north love doing that. Oh boy. Continuing the quote now. The extent of the human desire for medicines suggests this may be an evolutionary behavior. While a study of some modern medicinal plants that linked the useful medicinal compounds of certain plants to the way they were used in three separate regions of the world provides an indication of the antiquity and efficacy of their use. However, searching for evidence of use of medicines in the archaeological record is challenging. Plant remains only rarely survive into the deep paleolithic past, and when they do survive, it can be hard to demonstrate deliberate medicinal application. The only other way to obtain direct empirical evidence for the use of medicinal plants is through recovery and analysis of biomolecular compounds that can be present in residual material such as human dental calculus or on artifacts such as bags, pots, or tools. In order to reach an approximation of the likelihood of self-medication in the deep human past, we need to look at the broader evolutionary context. End quote.
0: Yeah, and indeed we will. The article proceeds to give lots of examples, and so here are some highlights, including plenty of callbacks to previous episodes of this very podcast. So the earliest archaeological evidence for long-term survival of a visibly non-optimum individual, which is how Hardy phrases it, so like someone who's not in good health, within the human evolutionary past is from Dmanisi in Georgia. This was a Homo erectus individual who lived around 1.7 million years ago. They survived for several years after periodontal disease caused the loss of all their teeth. Um, periodontal disease can be very dangerous. So um, it can lead to um, certain cancers. It can lead to other
1: heart, heart illnesses.
0: Disease. It can lead disease, to a heart yeah. failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is um, why and my baby so,
1: had to get some of her teeth removed.
0: Oh, baby dog. She had
1: a teethectomy. Oh. Yeah. She's good now. Well,
0: she can still bite you.
1: She sure can. <laughs>
0: um so this is you can look up the C skulls, these homo erectus skulls. There are ooh, six, I want to say six of them. Um, and one of them, very obviously, has no teeth and has that kind of resorption, like reabsorbed look. Mm-hmm it looks like they they would have had to like gum their food. And so this is early evidence for community care because this person would have, would not have been able to uh, chew their food very well. Um, But it's also evidence for possible dental care and use of antibacterial plants, because again, periodontal disease can be really dangerous. And so either this individual was incredibly lucky and, and, seems to have been supported by their community. But also there may have been some kind of medicinal something helping them out. I'm not saying that Homo erectus knew about germ theory and knew about necessarily w- would would have been able to describe the chemical effects of what they were using, but they, they would have had remedies. They, they would like have had like a sense of cause and effect. Yeah, exactly. Next, there are uh, there's evidence of toothpicks. The example that I like the most is from a 49,000 year old Neanderthal tooth from El Sidrón in Spain. And um, this is a, a non-edible wood fragment. So uh, Hardy et al. were able to identify the species of wood. So it wasn't something that went into this Neanderthal's mouth because they were eating it. Um, and the wood fragment was found adjacent to evidence for a tooth abscess. So they would have been trying to deal with that We've talked about this before, but the Shanidar Neanderthal is a really, really often-cited example of, if not medical care, then, then just care of an individual who received some debilitating injuries. Um, and you can go watch a video all about that particular Neanderthal that just came out from Stefan uh, uh over at History Smilo on YouTube. Um, I worked on the research with him, and it's a really, really beautifully done video. There are also... In, in dental calculus of that same Neanderthal individual from El Cidrone, there was evidence for a couple of plants, yarrow and chamomile. Both of those have no especially great nutritional properties. They're actually both quite bitter if you just eat them. Um, but they do have medicinal properties. And so there is some thought that this particular Neanderthal, because of that you know painful tooth abscess, may have been self-medicating. Okay, moving on from teeth. Sorry. <sighs> yep. Thanks. We've got Etsy. A-M-G. It's Etsy. Um, We talked about this on our Etsy episode, but uh, he may have had therapeutic tattoos. They were found to be on points of his body where there was evidence of of arthritis or other sort of physical complaints. Not all of them, but many of them. Therapeutic tattoos, asterisk. Like enough of them. Yeah. Enough of them weren't. That
1: it makes it seem like maybe <laughs> none of them were.
0: But there was evidence uh, in his stomach and also on his on his body of antibacterial moss that may have been used uh, for wound dressing because he was wounded. Yeah. Um, and then finally, it, sure was. Was. Uh, it didn't go great. Mortally. Several studies of prehistoric and pre-Hispanic populations in the American continent have identified possible ingestion of a range of medicinal plants, sometimes in association with evidence for intestinal parasites. So this is cool because um, in some South American prehistoric populations, they have low levels of the otherwise very, very common intestinal parasites, roundworm and whipworm. And Mm. so maybe they were sort of preventatively taking doses of these medicinal plants that sort of discouraged those parasites.
1: Are you saying like intentionally or like this was a part of what – like is this sort of the same thing of like arrow and yeah, meal, where it doesn't really have a nutritional merit? I, um, so like – It would depend or on the plants. Would, was it just coincidental? It
0: could be. It may be that it was part of their diet anyway and it helped with the parasites yeah. or – they may have noticed, you know, when I eat these, my tum feels less bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll have
1: another discussion about remedies after a while, because as you can hear, still not better, um, <laughs> even though I'm talking to my doctor, but oh, uh, oh, but, <laughs> but let's go back to maladies for the moment. Specifically, let's go to ancient Mesopotamia which the way Anna wrote it made it sound like it is a malady, Um, but no. Uh, No,
0: you're right. I did write that (laughs) clumsily.
1: Well, but, you know, this is not me in my 20s. Mm. Ancient Mesopotamia is not what's ailing me. Um, So in ancient Mesopotamia, disease was closely tied to cosmology. So um maladies or illnesses or just like symptoms in general mm-hmm. were often seen as the result of angered gods or pesky ghosts. Um so this this also come and and there's being like a a religious or cosmological value or a reason or sort of
0: for sickness Yeah. Like balance.
1: So we when we've talked about Lamashtu in the past mm-hmm. and um and era, uh like the the, the best best god. Pestilence. Like there was they had a job to do. Like they were they were told to do this uh by the gods. To, like to there maintain was a, a role. It, yeah, there was a role in maintaining the universe mm-hmm. so it doesn't kind of fall off kilter. Um, so it may not surprise you (laughs) then listener to know that, that people who were in the healing professions, um, were also, um, very commonly trained as priests or folks that engage in magic. Um, and so you've got in, um, there are two categories. There are two professions who are involved in this. There are the Asu, and the Asu were physicians in the sort of like guy with a lancet sense. Um, and then you've got the um, not the
0: medical journal, oh,
1: the Ashipu. Um, the Ashipu were the um, the ones who were more involved in kind of exorcisms and doing um, things that are uh, that are sort of coming from without so Asu would be dealing with sort of personal things um, and sort of things coming from within that person and the Ashipu would be dealing with things that are sort of external forces and I was trying to think of like, like just this evening after reviewing the script and being like ah oh, dang I learned about this once So should probably try to remember it um <laughs> it's like i tried to come up with an analog and all i came up with was like it's like going to your your general physician yeah. or a chiropractor yeah <laughs> because one is dealing with like your boils and stuff and the other one is you dealing got ghost with getting ghosts out of your bones <laughs> so uh, <laughs> i don't totally remember and also i never was an expert but um there's a very exhaustive and very Teutonic a seriological article about this that's in the show notes that, um, I, I recommend reading. It's, it's cool. It's got lots of lists. Ah, um, but if you're lists. looking for, they love a list. Um, a seriologist, not German. <laughs> so that's what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, yeah list was German. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, if you're looking for really accessible writing, this ain't it. But it's, <laughs> it's still interesting, nonetheless. So they they would work sort of in concert, or you may be referred from one to the other. <laughs> um, but they're but I also don't want to. Um, I don't want to imply that um, magic, like ma- magic, it's not the like Alistair Crowley at Loch Ness kind of magic, mm, like no. just people just like. Larping, like there, there was like actual, like there was like sort of a foundation of evidence, and like the there and like treatments that could actually be helpful. Not necessarily that, like burning a piece of bread in front of a, of an idol, and then having a black dog carry it, and then and then burying it. Which is one of the things to like, get Lamash to like sort of like a a, fever, a baby fever mm-hmm. to to break. Mm-hmm. That's like one of the things, like that kind of stuff, doesn't necessarily work. But if it eases your mind, perhaps like it will ease your your symptoms mm-hmm. um and so there is a value there but also there is stuff that Asu would do that um is is sort of like folk medicine that's like grounded in what we've talked about before like, uh, it's like with what's the yarrow and the chamomile yeah. like there is an effect they might be attributing it to a different source because they aren't like ah germ theory and like antimicrobial properties no. so you know you you go you go to your your ashipu and they'll exercise the ghost from your colon um that's what you want but that's that is what you, that's what if that's what you're looking for that's what you need um and also these are people that you would go to like when stuff's bad yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's not it's not like going to urgent care it's like this is like the Mayo Clinic kind of thing. The like the folks who are doing who were performing, uh, but magical medical treatments. <laughs> that was that was me in December. <laughs> You've had a rough year so far. I've been sick, <laughs> uh, so um, but they left a lot of lists. Like it was, it was sort of like it's a lot of just like how. Doctors have a lot of, like, textbooks and, like, reference materials that they go to today because you're not going to keep it all in your head. Goodness, no. You're like, let me look up this symptom. Ah, yes, he's got, like, the hand of Apkalu. Like, cool, let me look that up. Those Their medical practices were, like, not totally dissimilar to, like, basic medical practices today. Like, somewhere between, like, like chicken soup and flat ginger ale. Mm Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, taking an aspirin kind of thing. Yeah. So did doctor priests go to med school? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. They like had to be trained. Yeah. Like They, they, had, they apprenticed, I They were I training literature in the form of cuneiform tablets and a lot of like if-then clauses. So like if <laughs> someone mm-hmm. is presenting this, then do this. Mm-hmm. If they are doing this, then do this. Which is exactly the uh, format know, like, of
0: the Code of Hammurabi, which is just like
1: it, no, it, It's the yeah, default. If-then. a But also, and that's also... Um, the format of auguries mm-hmm. and omens. Mm-hmm. That like if, if, if X is presented, then Y is, the, is is what you should take from it. Um, and so as we've learned in discussions of cuneiform literature, there's a lot of lists. Just a lot of lists and lists of lists, and um, which is cool um, and, and is helpful. It's a reference document. So medical cuneiform tablets usually consist of several text sections, which are like cordoned off, yeah. like ruled off, um, and they're ruled into sections uh, to help with clarity and sort of ease of cross-references. Um, so ruled off text sections form units of content. Um, which can contain something like the text of an incantation, a ritual instruction or one of several related prescriptions for a specific purpose or a group of related diagnostic entries. So, you know, if this awilum is presenting um, a a burning pain in the pocket of his belly, so his scrotum, oh. and he's and he's like, you know, yelling about it. Um, he has been afflicted by the hand of Inanna, mm. which is like mm-hmm. he's got an STI. And so that's sort of like that's one of the like diagnostic things. Um, and so it's, you know, it there's like there's more beyond just being like, oh, you just got slapped by Inanna. It's like, no, here's what you can do to do something about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you want both parts. You want like, why do I feel like this? What can yeah. I do about it? Because they both, you know. Uh, it, it's, they both are helpful. Having your symptoms identified is, is uh, important for sort of peace of mind. But that's not the only source of information about illness that archaeologists have access to. There are the patients themselves. Let's travel briefly to Nimrud and examine some of the afflictions experienced by the occupants of a royal tomb from the period of Ashur Nasipal II. Uh, and that tomb was excavated between 1988 and 1990. And then the Gulf War situation got heated and they left. The The Iran-Iraq War and then the
1: Gulf War, it wasn't a tough time. Tough time. Tough time to be excavating in hmm
0: I'm going to quote now from an article by Tracy Spurrier on the uh, Ancient Near East Today. Quote, In 1997, paleopathologist Michael Schultz from the Zentrum Anatomie at the Universitat Göttingen so they're very French. I know. Anatomia. Anat- oh, is it? You pronounce the... Zintram Anatomia. Yeah, French brain. At the University Göttingen. Göttingen. Anyway, that guy spent 10 days at the Iraqi Museum examining the skeletal remains of 17 individuals from burials in nine coffins and sarcophagi found in the royal queen's tombs. That's queens, plural. In some coffins, the remains were secondary mass burials containing commingled and fragmented bones. Coupled with poor preservation, the sample only included a few complete skeletons. Despite this, Schultz discovered a range of all too familiar pathological conditions, including dental problems, colds, allergies, stiff joints, weakened bones, childhood illnesses, headaches, and possible neurological problems. I saw you make that face when I said cold. It's like, how would he yeah. know? Well... Yeah, got colds in my bones? You might. So here's how some of those diagnoses were reached. So colds, allergies, generally sinus conditions. Those were inferred by the presence of newer bone growth in nasal cavities. And so when we get sinus infections or anything that like really sort of causes inflammation of nasal tissue and sinuses.
1: When you get a crayon stuck up there?
0: Yeah, don't do that. Did you get a crayon stuck up your nose? That's what's wrong. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I mean,
0: ever, not
1: now. No, but I got a uh, yellow jacket up there once. Well, that's not your
0: fault. It flew up there. I got this. Okay. Mm. So, when we get those things, when we get a bee up our nose, the tissue in and around our sinuses gets inflamed and produces mucus. Sure does. <laughs> that inflammation can damage the delicate sinus bone very slightly, meaning that healing may be visible as new bone growth. So you can see like in the same way that you oh. can see that a, a broken arm has healed, you can see yeah. similar healing around the the nasal bones, which are very small and fragile. So it's like a
1: where that we might be seeing like evidence of chronic sinusitis.
0: Yeah, so in looking at that and seeing evidence of sinus problems you can't say ah they had a cold or like ah they had yeah. allergies but you can tell that there was some kind of affliction that had to do with lots of snot
1: like a, yeah like a, a chronic sinus mm-hmm. thing
0: i mean there are texts where ancient assyrians often mention a heavy feeling in the head and nose as well as blockage in the nostrils that
1: doesn't i can't resonate that doesn't resonate with no me. hmm i can't i can't hmm. I consider myself an empath, but I can't.
0: (laughs) That's beyond me. It's not within your capabilities. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A number of skulls from the Nimrud tombs showed evidence of meningeal inflammation. So your meninges are tissues around your brain, uh, sort of between your skull and your brain. They're important. Uh, This can be from bacterial infection, so meningitis or encephalitis, both pretty dangerous. Or from headache disorders, so frequent migraines, both of which cause blood vessels around the brain to constrict and expand. And that's what hurts is the blood vessels doing their thing. And so Spurrier writes, quote, medical texts describe people having headaches as well as possible meningitis type symptoms, such as pain, spasm, fever, hearing trouble, vision dimming, neurological abnormalities, depression, and limb numbness, end quote. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there there are these, it's difficult in any case, to sort of retroactively diagnose someone from observation. who's a great diet of bird flu. Any, <laughs> it, it's difficult for actual medical professionals to diagnose. You know, some of us can just toss off a diagnosis like it's nothing. Yeah,
1: we can. <laughs> What's up with the
0: doctors? <laughs> What's all that school for? <laughs> but you can surmise based on the group of symptoms what may have been the cause, right? So we're not can't really say anything definitive except that you know people had headaches yeah i um we've talked
1: about this before when we talked about um moody Arashid's work mm. of like looking at like grief and pain still would really like, like in to mesopotamia like, like emotional pain yeah and um and like i find that um i've thought a lot more about that like that kind of suffering um like in sharing that with with people in antiquity mm-hmm. um but like I find it very I don't know I find it very um moving and and like affecting to read about to read descriptions of symptoms to be like that I is, know what that feels like it's like yeah like that's it that's a very vivid and evocative description and like having people describe things that sound like a migraine and things that sound like like dep- like major depression and and things is just like yeah. I understand yeah. why you'd go to a guy to like Can you get these ghosts? Try out of here? To like be to like to like intercede on your mm-hmm. behalf and like help you sort of bargain with
0: whoever is doing yeah. it to you. To kind of wrap up this section, uh let's have a case study. So I, I really appreciate this this article is actually quite good. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of pictures, which was surprising. That was fun for me. Um Yay okay. <laughs> This one's not hard. But more importantly, Spurrier writes in a way that emphasizes that these were real people feeling real illness, discomfort, and pain. Um, yeah. and, and there are several very interesting details. And I don't think I could do a better job of writing it than the author's already done. So uh, I'm going to pull some excerpts here. Normally, we don't, we try not to do these lengthy yeah. quotations. But before you get going, please restate the author's name Tracy Spurrier. to humanize these bones and flesh them out, I offer a brief osteobiography of one individual, the skeleton identified by some as Queen Atalia, wife of Sargon II, who ruled from 721 to 705 BCE. Pretty great. He was pretty great. He was pretty great. A lot of ships. No, wrong Sargon. Oh, again? I know. Too many Sargons. Certainly one too many. You know... We're not even talking about Sargon. We're talking about Atalia. And she was buried in a stone sarcophagus in Tomb 2 on top of another queen, often identified as Yaba. Both have West Semitic names and are plausibly identified as Judeans and might even have been members of the Judean royal family. I don't know. That's an interesting... Sure. (laughs) ...idea. Sure. Before burial... Atalia's body was roasted or possibly smoked for a number of hours. Should I have a content warning should I
1: yeah, for lady roasting? Yeah, I think so. Uh, we well, you, you can include it in the show notes. It's like, yeah, tooth tooth trauma it does come on suddenly. There's a no content
0: warning for me. Well, before burial, uh Atalia's body was roasted or possibly smoked for a number of hours at between one hundred and fifty to two hundred and 50 degrees Celsius, and then wrapped in a shroud. There's a reason for that. Hang on. Hold on. She presumably died around the age mm-hmm. of 35. It's not known why the body was roasted, perhaps for preservation purposes, to prepare her for long-distance transport, or as a caution against spreading a disease she may have had. So we don't know why, but she was uh, prepared for burial in that way. There seems to be an understanding in cuneiform texts that... Disease pass like there's no germ theory. We're not saying that um Syrians about have microbes theory now. So I know. Um, but there is lots of mention in cuneiform texts of isolation as a requirement for treatment of some illnesses. There are specific directives, including ones not to drink from the same cup as a sick person, or if someone is ill with certain diseases, to have them sequester themselves in a room for X number of days. Yeah, okay, so resume quote. Queen Atalia had by far the most health problems of any of the people in the tombs, at least among the most complete skeletons. Because remember, there were also lots of commingled, fragmented remains. Her dental health was notably poor. She had inflamed gums, an abscess, plaque, and a cavity on her first premolar. And she also seems to have suffered a long-term and severe illness as a child, shown by hypoplasia on her teeth. So that line... That's an indicator of the body sort of shutting down certain processes, like making teeth, in order to um, preserve other ones, like keeping you alive. Resuming again. Aselia also had inflammation on the interior of both frontal sinuses, and though she died young by modern standards, there were already signs of mild arthritis in her shoulders, hips, knees, and ankle joints, as well as in numerous vertebrae. She had suffered a broken toe and pulled a leg muscle sometime during life as well. So, end quote. So there's a lot that you can tell from from the skeleton, and and Spurrier goes on to describe some more of Atalia's troubles. And it might seem like this this poor woman was just constantly miserable and just never not sick. Um, keep in mind that this is this is a palimpsest. This is just the record of all of these illnesses preserved on the body, but no indication of when during her yeah. 35ish years of existence they happened. So the timeline of these pathologies. It's not clear she probably didn't have all of these issues at once.
1: yeah, but that the, said, some of these sound like things that are typical of um, like an autoimmune disorder and then they mm-hmm. they there can be um, things that like complications and intersections of those and so it could be that um, she may not have she may have had like a full and happy life full of you know like excitement and love. But also had – Yeah, she the, wasn't in great health, health for a lot of people. And also had is. um, health issues, like physical health issues. Yeah. Okay, let's leave Mesopotamia. We've done a lot of Mesopotamia today. I appreciate it mm-hmm. as the, the most maligned of the two of us right now. It's not a competition, but if it were, I would win today. Maligned doesn't um,
0: like you have maladies?
1: Yes. We're leaving Mesopotamia, whether you like it or not, and we're going to go down to Southern Africa, to what is today known as South Africa. Um, so around 500 years ago, a container made from a cow's horn um, and containing possible medicinal mixtures was left in a cave in the Eastern Cape region. 500 years later, so recently. Mm-hmm. A hiker camping with his family found the artifact and a French news site wrote a silly headline about
0: it. Anna, read it, please. Now, do I read it with a French accent or no? Yes. Cowabunga! Horn reveals herbal mixtures used by medieval healers in South Africa. I don't know what accent that was. It wasn't that was really like French. a
1: weird like
0: Mid, it was a Monty Python.
1: Like, that was like exit. a
0: mid-Atlantic. You got me. I'm hooked. It's our, It's. Re- I know why there's a silly headline to get people to read it, but like the the find itself is amazing. Yeah, so.
1: way more amazing than something I've not seen since Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Cowabunga, Cowabunga mon frère. <laughs> <laughs> Michel Uh So, the horn <laughs> was sampled for radiocarbon dating and dates to around 1461 to 1630 CE. The container was capped with leather and contained herbal mixtures. Herbal. Herbal.
0: Melange. Um,
1: yeah. Um, described as dry and crusty remainders of ointments. Gross. Um. And these were identified via chemical analyses. So components of the mixture include various plant compounds consistent with those known to treat fevers and infections. Um, So these are found in local plants, among them the Namaqua rock fig, the butterfly pea, (laughs) and the cancer bush. So butterfly pea is a shrub um, also known as the balloon pea um, because of its inflated pods. Uh, So it's long thought to act as a cancer remedy, uh, but this has not been conclusively tested. Please don't obliterate our podcast from the internet because we suggested that it cures cancer.
0: No, we're saying that research suggests that it may have anti-cancer properties.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about the cancer bush. Yeah. Um, so it also has strong antioxidant properties. Um, real quick, Anna, Mm -hmm. what's an antioxidant?
0: Keep going. This is like me being
1: like collagen. Is it BS? (laughs) This This is like what I text my, my medical doctor about. Um, so while my medical doctor is consulting the literature on this, um, I will continue reading what my medical doctor wrote in the script. Um, so the cancer bush also has strong antioxidant properties and was used by the Hoi, um, a local pastoral community, for washing wounds and treating fevers and eye infections.
0: So oxidizing in general is damage or decay when it when it comes to like living tissues, and so an antioxidant. Uh, Antioxidant? That's what you
1: need. An
0: anti-obstinate.
1: No, I don't. (laughs) Uh,
0: An antioxidant is a substance, such as vitamin C or E, that removes potentially damaging oxidizing agents in a living organism. So it just gets rid of things that can cause tissue damage. Interesting. I believe. Again, super duper not a medical doctor. I need to make a sting. Just like, (laughs) Anna's not a real doctor. You are a real doctor. I'm I'm a I'm a letters. letters. I'm a fudda. The
1: pharmacological effects of the compounds um, the research team found in the horn point to a generic medicine used to treat a wide range of different ailments, like a tiger bomb, cow bomb. See, that's better than cowabunga. cattle bomb. Um, So. The horn was tightly wrapped in grass and the papery scales of the poison bulb plant. Um, Could you say those two words so that people can understand what they are? The papery scales of the poison bulb plant. Of the poison bulb plant. (laughs) 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 <laughs> and wrapped in a netting of woven plant fiber. So poison bulb scales are known to have antiseptic and preservative properties, which is likely why the horn survives so long. And in response to what's written in the script, yes, Anna, it is so cool. Yeah. That's really awesome.
0: It's just like it's it's very clear that whoever was using whatever was in that horn may not have known the sort of microbial causes of what they were treating, but they knew that it helped. And later analyses proved why. Like it shows why it's helpful. So like, that's neat.
1: Yeah. And so, which is just like another, just another example of technology. Mm -hmm. And that technology, it doesn't have to be like, What's hot in tech?
0: Yeah, it doesn't have to be like modern, advanced. It's using... Effective. Yes, it's effective. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah? I wanted to include a couple more things at the end here that really didn't fit into my original outline because I was going to go like ailments and remedies. Um, And then some internet rabbit holes happened. And look, I only wrote this script in a few hours. So we're just... We're just going to sneak these things in at the end, um, and they're two of the natural scare quotes remedies most commonly associated with colds. I would say in in the in the West, echinacea and vitamin C. So let's start with echinacea yeah. because that one isn't a scam. I'm pretty sure. Echinacea has been used for a wide range of ailments by indigenous American groups for at least four hundred years. There's archaeological evidence. Um, it does. There's there's a lot of literature on like its properties. And whether it actually has anti-inflammatory and anti-tumor properties. And most of them say, it seems to, but more research needs to be done in order to confirm. Like, okay, that's not helpful for me writing this script, but thank you for, you know, being open about that. Thanks for being honest. Mm -hmm. It, It does seem to be effective in sort of reducing inflammation response, which, you know, if you are sick, that can be a real boon. And echinacea was first commercialized, hooray, around 1870 by one H.C.F. Meyer, a German lay physician. Also not a real oh, doctor, no. just like oh, me. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, he was a, a bit of a snake oil guy. I don't want to cast dispersions because he may have really believed in the in the healing properties of, of his potion, but he sold it as a component in a patent medicine called Meyer's blood purifier. I think it's okay to cast dispersions on a guy that sold snake oil, yeah, even if man. he thought it worked. He's also dead, so hey. (laughs) Also a botanical remedy that is mentioned uh, in context of indigenous America, cannabis, which might need to be its own episode because hemp is a very versatile and interesting plant. All right, so let's wrap up by talking about vitamin C, just like as a public service, because I have been told my whole life to take vitamin C for colds, and that it's good for me, and that I need a lot of it. And I learned recently that the hype over vitamin C is mostly the work of one guy who made it his career goal to convince everyone that vitamin C was a cure for everything.
1: His name was George Emergen.
0: Oh, his name, listeners, was Linus Pauling.
1: <laughs> he looks like Andy Circus playing yes, l- like late in life Rowan Atkinson in the inevitable biopic.
0: Oh my god. You nailed it. That's a special skill you have um but also there are (laughs) this um, guy looks like that (laughs) no you're really good at it i'm really good at what that guy looks like but you don't have celebrity face blindness like i do he turns out to have been a bit of a crank but he was also a brilliant scientist like he was a two-time nobel prize winner but he was a brilliant scientist who got obsessed with proving something and in retrospect it has made him look very foolish But he's also a great example of how people can place their trust in things like supplements that are sold to them as panaceas without thinking critically because they might not have the background to know how to do that. You can have an absolutely
1: correct uh, mistrust or you could have really good reasons Mm -hmm. and lots lots of examples of why you shouldn't trust something. But that doesn't mean that it's setting you up to put your trust in something more trustworthy. Like, like people, like people have really understandable and um, well articulated grievances, but like where you rest the blame and who you look to to solve it is very open ended. Yeah, and and so some of the people like and this is just like a big part of. I mean, this is another form of pseudoscience of like the kind of work that you and I increasingly find ourselves engaging in of of just sort of like, I get where you're coming from and where you're coming from is extremely valid.
0: Yeah, like, but the solution that about you have how, set your sights on is... Like
1: when we talked about the trillions of dollars spent on pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. like those trillions of dollars aren't like they're there because of profit motive, not because of Lives saved, yeah. Efficacy or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I understand why you would want to look somewhere else, and like the like real run of of times that medical trials, vaccine trials, like through the the sixties, through the eighties, if not before, like completely
0: whiffed it, and like not to mention catastrophic abuse of.
1: Yeah, well, like, but but just like sort of like so called good science, oh, yeah, is like responsible for. Lots Problems. of deaths of, yeah. I learned about like RSV. There were attempts to make an, cause I convinced myself I had RSV. There were attempts to come up with a vaccine regimen for RSV. Um, I think in the eight, it was in the sixties or the eighties, you know, the past. Um, but it was, it's so, it's so difficult to do that with infant populations because they don't have much of their own immune systems and you don't want to interfere with the development of them and you also can't control for the presence of maternal antibodies. So what ended up happening was there was um, a, a really large number of Children involved in that st- in those trials who died or who were hospitalized for really severe side effects or symptoms, and that um, left the whole concept of vaccines with a black eye, where people are like, "You can't just go out here and like try it out," kind of thing. And so, even though that resulted in huge changes in how. Uh, vaccine development works, how trials work, it you doesn't change the fact that people are like, I don't want my baby to die. Yeah. And like, I would rather have my baby be quite sick temporarily than possibly dead forever. And so like those sorts of things, it's
0: like, yeah, that's yeah, valid. I understand where the mistrust comes from, yeah. but vaccines have come a long
1: way. But like giving your kid bleach isn't going to fix it either. Please don't. Like that, like sort of like the sort of looking yeah. to homeopathy. But it's like, yeah, it doesn't kill them because it don't do nothing.
0: Yeah. But also, bleach will kill a baby. So please don't
1: give your kids bleach. The MMS isn't quite homeopathy. It's just straight up bleach.
0: Yeah. Um, so speaking of the sixties, the past. Um in the (laughs) the past. The past. The past I don't understand.
1: Around six ten AD, I lose it. And then it picks back up in like (laughs) the (laughs) nineties.
0: Uh well, in the early 1960s CE, Linus Pauling received a letter from a man who had been in the audience of one of his many lectures on chemistry. In the letter, the writer recommended uh, because Pauling in the, in the lecture had said something about like oh, I wish I you know I I want to prolong my life another 25 years so that I can keep learning more about chemistry something something. Uh, the writer recommended that. Yeah, yeah, the writer recommended that Pauling take 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C each day to live longer. Uh, he did that, Pauling did that, uh, and he felt better, and he was into it. In 1970, Pauling yeah. came out with his book, Vitamin C and the Common Cold, where he encouraged Americans to consume 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C daily. Now, for the record, the current daily recommended value for vitamin C, as determined by the FDA, is 90 milligrams for anyone over the age of four. And for anyone over, under the age of four, do don't it's less than that. <laughs> It's don't. It's don't give supplements to your toddler. So yes, overdose, but also your body really isn't going to retain or process more than those 90 milligrams. I mean, maybe a bit more, but it It mostly will just go through your kidneys and into your pee. Oh
1: no, it it because it's water. It's like Mm -hmm. it's
0: it's It's water soluble. It'll flush
1: out, but it it, you will you can overdose. Yes, because it's too much for your kidneys to flush out. Yeah, no,
0: yes. Your kidneys (laughs) are working to flush it, and if you keep upping the dosage, uh, they're not going to be happy. But Pauling's enthusiasm went off the rails pretty quickly. He became a vitamin C acolyte. He said it would make the common cold disappear completely off the face of the earth. He said that vitamins and nutritional supplements could cure everything from retinal detachment to snake bites to the virus that causes AIDS. And he said it in a recorded lecture that you can watch on YouTube if you want. Um, Yeah. So like, it's not just like he said, it's you can hear him say these things. So does vitamin C do anything for the immune system? Does it cure colds? Eh. Will it make my retina detach? Reattach? Is it detached?
1: No, it's really great. I had a photo taken the other day.
0: Well, you know what? You're good. Is it because I took the vitamin C? Nope. Empirical studies have shown that taking vitamin C while you have a cold may shorten its duration slightly. But it was to the extent of like, if you have a cold that lasts five days, it'll probably shorten your cold by about 10 hours. A little bit. Clinical trials, as far as I could tell, um, I came up with nothing no meaningful results for connections between vitamin C and immune health. So if you see supplements that are like, protect your immune system. So it really is total skin.
1: Yeah. And like the benefit that people get is like when they drink the emergency, they are drinking more fluids.
0: They are drinking more fluids. And And that's it. Maybe the, you know, the placebo effect is a very powerful thing. Maybe that's a component of it. Does that mean you shouldn't take vitamin C as a supplement? Maybe not. I mean, your body really does need it to keep you healthy. Lack of vitamin C does cause scurvy, I which mean, is like awful. If, if
1: you're you completely and some deficient. Folks, and and some folks do need more, but that yeah. is like between them and their like the people Actual doing their doctorate. blood panels. Yeah. yeah.
0: And also vitamin C is sort of packaged with a cold. It's so ingrained through through ads and, and whatever that... Oh, you're sick? Drink some orange juice. And again, for the millionth time, I'm not a medical doctor. Please talk to one if you have actual questions about your immune health. <laughs> like, I talk to my
1: real doctor.
0: I just feel like this is an intervention now. Our listeners. No, no, no. Oh, okay. No, I mean, I do. I know you talk to an actual doctor, not just me.
1: Because I tell you about that too. I know.
0: <laughs> but if you've got the sniffles and you're tempted by the mega high dose vitamin C supplements at the drugstore, save yourself the 15 bucks. It's it's either going to just go right through you or it could hurt you. Uh, but thanks, everybody. Um, thank, thank you. for you. If you stayed all the way through this very slightly unhinged episode, thank you. I did my best. I don't know if it I, was. You coherent. did a great job. Okay, good. I, oh, no, boy. you did it. No, Anna did all the work here.
1: I just badly remembered something that I read 12 years ago
0: (laughs) (laughs) well in the meantime um hang in there and we will be back with more content soon and you can find us on social media in the meantime things are popping off on instagram where we are uh at the dirt pod that's right yep we're at the Dirt Pod on Instagram. I did it out of order, Popping and I just, oh, oh, oh. No, I just, I just want to highlight the, the work of our wonderful, yeah, producer Jenna, who's, who's doing great stuff on Instagram. Um, you can find us on Facebook at the Dirt Podcast, and on Twitter we're at Dirt Podcast. Thanks, everybody. We Thank love you. you. Bye.
1: Goodbye.